Hey guys, welcome to episode 20 of the Worldwide Knicks podcast. Crazy that we've gotten to 20 episodes, guys. Alex and Rafa alongside here, per usual. How are we doing tonight, guys? Much better after that game anyway, Omar. So yeah. um, I'm back being happy again. I've been grumpy all week. So <laughs> as you guys probably noticed on the, on the uh, WhatsApp chat, but back happy again. That was a great game tonight. Yeah, so we are recording this right after the Clippers win, where the Knicks beat the LA Clippers 110-102 at the Garden. So today is a really special episode. We have a special guest later on, Arsan Demir. He's a great scout and NBA draft analyst on Twitter, and he really gives us some excellent insight into kind of what to look forward to for some of our players we drafted this year and what to look forward and what the team might be looking at next year. And just an overall great conversation about the health and state of European basketball as it pertains to the NBA. So super fun conversation. Stay tuned for that. But before that, we're going to talk about a couple things and let you get to the interview after that. So this week was a one in three weeks. So the opposite of what Rafa and Alex predicted last week. So um, so with losses against Charlotte, Minnesota, and New Orleans, and as we mentioned, a win against the Clippers this afternoon. But instead of doing some recaps, let's just jump into some talking points that have been going around Nick's Twitter. The first one, and I'm sure Alex will love to talk about this the most, is uh, there is a growing unrest, shall we say, in Nick's land, and certain fans are suggesting firing Thomas Thibodeau going into the direction of a new coach for the resident Tibbs apologist react. No, before Alex goes, I just <laughs> saying that well, while Omar was uh, introducing the topic, Alex was just breathing in. <sighs> getting ready. Get ready. <laughs> get it. Oh, I'm getting Don't it together. I'm getting my yeah. shit together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, earlier in the week, I stopped looking at Twitter, which everybody should do from time to time it's it's it <laughs> helps your helps your mental state no end the fire tip stuff would just send me over the edge i just it's it's just daft it's it really is it's i mean the time to fire coaches the time to change coaches is when the coach has lost the team i mean you can't tell me that you know these players aren't playing for each other aren't playing for the coach yeah there's all sorts of stuff wrong at the moment but to me, anyway, there's nothing wrong with the relationship between the players and the coach. So Tibbs is a, an experienced, he's a great coach. He's proved it time and again. I mean, what do fans want? Do they want to get rid of coach? And You know, the, the answer to all these kind of things is, well, what next? What would you do? What what happens next after you fire Tibbs? I mean, do you who who's out there that's available? Nobody, particularly. Nobody experienced anyway that I can see. So you go down the route of a young guy, which, you know, how's that working out for, say, Boston? Do you know, like, look at their situation. We've gone down the route of, of young coaches before, like Fisher and Hornacek. But, you know, is that's taken a, a huge step backwards. Tibbs is, right, not just the coach of the year stuff, which has been banged about a lot, but he knows what he's doing. He's, he's a, he works like like no other coach in the league, uh, you know, to get the team right. It's not as if he's sending these players out there to fail. He's sending those players out to win, and they need to take a little bit more responsibility about what's going wrong in the court. I see all sorts of stuff like, oh, he's just shoving 
RJ in the corner to shoot threes. Well, no, he's not. He really isn't. He maybe does that for one or two players, but that's to space the floor for other players like Julius and Burks and so on to, to kind of create more space. There's there's so much more complex stuff going on than, than people give it credit for. Just a few bad results. And it's, you know, just, it's the lazy, it's the lazy answer. Just sack the coach, do you know, but what, what would happen if you fired the coach tomorrow? Do you know, we just go back to square one. Um, and I, I, I don't want to go back there again. So, you know, you've got to stick with it. I mean, obviously, if there's personal stuff going on, like he had in in Minnesota, that's a different story, you know. But as far as I can see, there's there's nothing like that going on right now. So I just don't get it at all. Tibbs was never a consensual uh, pick for Knicks fans. Uh, even since he was picked as a head coach, people were, um, ah, he's not, it's not going to work. And so there are many people that are waiting for him to fail so they could say, hey, I was right. It, it's Knicks, man. It's, uh, it ha it's happening with Tibbs this year. It's happening with Randall. It's happening every time RJ has a bad game. This week it happened. He had two terrible games and people were back on the RJ's a bust thing. So. I said it before. I don't think Tibbs should get fired. I think it's uh, that it's not a not been an easy season for any team. And firing coaches this year, it's it's a bit counterproductive because teams have been struggling with injuries uh, and others with COVID, especially. So the rotations have been a little bit off. You, you can see across the league that teams have uh, crazy records. So I don't I don't think he should be fired. There are some things I think he should improve. Uh, the the rotations, the adjustments, and some sometimes getting because he has those rotations, he's set with those, those rotations. He, he doesn't try to change them. We had a, a, a terrible, oh, terrible couple of games this week, and he never tried to tweak them. The, the okay, we're, it's not working. We we were down by five. We're down by, by almost twenty now. Just get the starters or one or two starters off early. He never does that, and that's where people or this eye can get to to point. The finger like dude do something different it's not working try i don't know try try mcbride and get grimes in sooner or uh, over fournier who's who can't defend try to to adjust and i think where he fails and where people jump on him especially and they want him to play obi for 48 oh minutes oh my god so, okay yeah. yeah. don't get me started yeah. on that again i mean no, <laughs> no, no coaches no coach is perfect and and, and right. it's like People forget that there's there's another great coach on the other side. Do you know that that's second right. guessing him? You know, countering his plays and all that kind of stuff. Coaching's not easy. Do you know, it's a very complex thing, and sometimes people simplify it to the point of, you know, they'll see a play where you know it looks like something's gone wrong with the play, and it's like possibly the play's gone wrong because you know there's been a great defensive play on the other side Do you know it's mm -hmm. it's not as it's not as uh, kind of straightforward as, as as a lot of people make out but yeah i mean tibbs has got a very thick skin i'd imagine i don't think it's probably affecting him too much as long as he's got the support from from rose and and others then yeah i don't think he's he's really that bothered about what people are saying on twitter so so my my takeaway about this is As a team that's trying to build a foundation, you cannot be on this two-year treadmill with coaches because yeah. Vizdale lasted a year and a half. You know, it's the same thing. You know, say whatever you will about him, but it's the precedent 
right? It's the precedent of, oh, you have the first sign of adversity, you just jumped and fire the coach. And there's no indication of any sort of locker room turmoil as much as Mark Berman wants it to feel that way. You know, relax. there's no, relax, you know, so Berman, right. relax, Berman, relax. relax. <laughs> That's not the case. The team still plays for Tibbs. The team is still complimentary of Tibbs. Cam Reddish has come in and said nothing but, you know, the right things about, you know, being ingratiated into this system and all that. And, and my thing is like, us as Nick fans, man, we, we need to be better. You know, we can't be this fire the coach shit. You know, it's, you see it in European football all the time too. Like a team draws against like a lower, lower table club and they're like, oh, sack the manager, sack the manager. It's like, no, you can't do that. You know, it's like, do you want a perpetual state of chaos in a game that plays 82 games in the regular season? Like you're going to have ups and downs. And we all know this team isn't a championship contender right now. You know, they're a fringe playoff team. That's like we might have elevated their expectations foolishly at the beginning of the year. But at the end of the day, they're a team that's probably going to end up winning around 38 games, 39, 40 games, whatever. That's who they are. To just go up and fire the coach when you got a young team that's still developing and star that's kind of been struggling throughout the season. You can't just, just fire the coach and bring somebody else. And to your point, Alex, who are you going to hire? Like no one's well, really out there like that. But I mean, interesting you compare to football, European football, that in football, the coach or the manager has a lot more input as to who is on the team, right, right. Who is on, who's on the squad or the roster. Whereas, you know, the coach is the coach in, in basketball and, and a lot of American sports, you know, these guys, and, and I know Tibbs being the experienced coach that he is, has input as to how the roster is constructed. But just a general point about, you know, the coach doesn't have a lot of say, uh, mm-hmm. final say as to who's coming onto the roster. He's got to just deal with what he's got. And we've talked at length about the fact that we, we like the, the next roster. It's a deep roster, but it's very, the, there's no real top heavy stars on, on the roster. And other teams like maybe Boston have got a couple of, couple of stars just to dig them out of holes sometimes. And, as you say, I think I think where we are at the moment is where we are. Do you know, it's right. a lot. Of, a lot of it's to do with expectations for fans. Yeah. Well, I think we're all in unison in agreement here that we are not pushing to fire the coach. You know, I think every coach in the NBA, you got to give them at least three years, right? You see if they can institute their program, be on the right track for three years, and then you know you assess the situation from there. Let's move on to Rafa's favorite topic now which is NBA referees. So a little bit of backstory. The Knicks played the Wolves, Timberwolves, on Tuesday. You know, there were a few suspect calls down the stretch of that game, and NBA came out with their two-minute report and said that there are three calls that went against the Knicks that should have went for the Knicks. I mean, the, the two that stick out the most is Carl Anthony Towns' drive that they called a foul on Julius on should have been an offensive foul. And at the very end of the game where RJ intercepted an inbounds pass and it looked like uh, D'Angelo Russell kind of shoved him and they said that probably should have been a loose ball foul on, on Russell. But they weren't. It doesn't change the outcome. And I guess the big thing is just like, how bad is this refereeing situation in the league, right? I've said to you before, I, I, I don't really think it's that bad, but I, I think there's a few things that they should change. I mean, there's talk about you know the the challenge 
rule should be extended to pretty much anything you can challenge if you want to. It should also be if the challenge is accepted, uh, sorry, the the decision's overturned through your challenge, then you should keep your challenge for another one. I don't think it would take too much time out. If, if the referees are getting the decisions right at the end of the day, then there shouldn't be any extra extra time added on for extra challenges. Or maybe they could just do it for the last two minutes of a game or last couple of minutes of a half or something, then you know you can have that extra challenge if you challenge it and it, it, it's correct. I don't know, something like that. But the multiple refs thing as well, there shouldn't be that many things that they don't see. But as for kind of like vendettas and things like that against certain teams, it's it, it doesn't make much sense to me. I mean, these these refs are completely under the spotlight, especially that two-minute last, you know, the report that they bring out after games. Do you know, they wouldn't make a decision that's wrong on purpose. And then, you know, it makes them look bad, you know, when they get this stuff wrong. So it doesn't make any sense for their career, their, their kind of position, where they are in the referees the other referees if they were if they were just getting stuff wrong on purpose you know so yeah the the decisions were pretty terrible in that wolves game and it probably will possibly cost us the cost us the game but uh, you just have to take that on the chin sometimes um, and hope that it you know evens itself out over the the course of the season and i'm sure if we actually looked at the games in, in depth there probably are games in there sure. we got lucky decisions but you kind of gloss yeah. over them when they go your way and you only notice the ones that go against you. It's usually how it goes, right? <laughs> you, just, yeah. you look at the ones just that uh, hurt your team. I mean, that game against the, the Timberwolves, I mean, both you know it happened. I went uh, a little bit crazy for two things because we are playing really, really bad and the refs weren't helping at all as well. So it was a really tough game to watch. I mean, that game took three hours. So many free throws, so many calls, so many. We got only in our two centers, we got uh, 11 fouls. And Mitch and Taj. No, Taj got the, the sixth as well, so 12. Yeah, I forgot Taj was uh, out as well. So 12 fouls only on, on, on those two. And there was every contact was a foul. And I mean, it was a little bit. I mean, they knows only the, those last three three calls. If they were the RJ one, the 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 Towns one, and then the other one, I don't even remember. I mean, it, it gets frustrating. You're frustrating at your team that you're not playing well, and you see the refs help not helping at all. You kind of want to lash out at uh, someone. As we all know, when Knicks lose, we have to point fingers at someone. And this game, no, there wasn't a player who to point fingers to. It was the refs. They ended up screwing, screwing with us as well. We screwed up the game for us many times that game, but uh, we ended up the drafts ended up screwing it for, for us as well. But I was mentioning before we, we we started recording that the problem with the refs is that there well obviously there are many refs, referees, different ones, and they have their own styles right. of uh, of what's a foul, or what's not a foul. And seeing as we like football, we you see one game a week. And so it okay. It doesn't seem so obvious, but watching the NBA, playing back-to-back games, playing every other game, every other day, it's just um, okay. You see the differences in foul calling and not uh, in one game, and it, to, 
to one game to, to, to the other. So it seems more obvious. And there are, there are some referees that you say, okay, this guy sucks. And the, the guy who, I don't even remember the name, the guy who, who refereed, the, the main referee for that game against the Timberwolves was someone that Knicks fans hate. And I know they hate Scott Foster, but I don't think it was Scott Foster who was doing the refereeing that night. I, I, can't, remember I can't, can't remember who it is. Yeah. But then, but, but then again, if, if you hate a ref, then you see things that you see things that you want to see. Yeah. You, yeah, see, yeah. you see more. You see more. I but. guess like my thing with the ref thing is, I I always like I I deal with this a lot in American football when I'm when I'm talking to my friends about that. Like a call goes wrong towards the end of the game or in the middle of the game or something, and people are saying, "Oh, refs cost them the game. Refs blew it." Blah blah blah. And I'm just like. Like at the end of the day, it's on you as a player and as a team if you allowed it to be in a situation where the refs took over the game, you know what I mean, where they mattered. Uh, but I also would be foolish to just ignore the fact that that RJ call was egregious, you know, and then that really changed the, the scope of the end of the game. But even still, at the very end, Nick still had a shot to win that game, just it happened to miss, you know, and Uh, if they would have won the game, it wouldn't have been as big of a deal, right? It's like when they say it's a make-or-miss league, you know, that's what they're talking about right there. To include my point, I'm a guy that says this says this a lot. This game, I couldn't control myself to, to do it, but a few a few days have passed, and I, I usually say if you are in a game, you play it's 48 minutes in the NBA, if you needed those two seconds to go your way to win the game, you have done some bad play and uh, during those 48 minutes because if you played well you probably wouldn't need that uh, that two second play or that shove from uh, from from D'Angelo Russell to be called I mean right, yeah, right. because the, the and that, that it was that game alone but the Knicks played terribly we played one quarter it was the third quarter when we played very very well and got mm -hmm. the lead and got got back into the game first half and the fourth quarter we we were we weren't good so if we played good the whole game or better than that we would have won that game easily mm -hmm. yeah i mean that's again that comes back to the team you play a, a complete game you know you take it out of the ref's hands and that's that's basically what it comes down to my last thing on the refs was that in, in football as well where it's a hell of a lot worse the way the refs get treated in, in, in football soccer sure Get refs getting paid very little money, chased out the stadium. They get death threats. They get all sorts. Uh, Talk about a thankless just, job, just, man. Yes. Maybe that's just Glasgow football, but the the um, <laughs> no, uh, it's the world. The, it's the, the referees, world. Yeah, yeah. The referees are Celtic fan. The referees are you know. Rangers oh yeah. Fan. It's nonstop. Yeah. It's, it's but my question is why why would you want to become a ref ref? <laughs> And, and, right. and have all that you know what made you think yeah that's a really good life choice you know <laughs> we we're th we are three nba fans right here three basketball fans what yeah. is the only way we can be in that in, that in the sport? arena besides being yeah doing something in the arena besides we're doing a podcast now but to be in the arena yeah be we a ref a, yeah that's the be best ref, path right probably the mop boy or something <laughs> i mean the uh be the drink guy yeah, yeah. <laughs> passing out the gatorade to the players and stuff one of those guys um, that fires t-shirts at a cannon oh yeah there you go i tell you what in here in detroit the mascot does that and so like the mascot is like this horse and he's like the most beloved figure for the the entire christmas franchise it's great but uh so 
One last thing to talk about before uh, we get to our interview is there's been some chatter on Nick's Twitter, which I'm trying, Alex, you mentioned taking a break from Twitter. I'm trying to kind of, <laughs> you know, lay off of Nick's and NBA Twitter for a minute because it's, it's, it's it gets pretty toxic, but it's like some discourse about, you know, Julius Randle, uh, the Knicks were just fined. What was it? $250,000 by the league for not making him available for eight of the last nine post-game press conferences. And everybody's like, well, you know, Julius is ducking the smoke because he's playing poorly. And, you know, Carmelo never would have done this. And what it's kind of snowballed into is this Julius V Carmelo debate. I just kind of wanted to put my two cents on there. I mean, at the end of the day, when Julius came here, it was already a disappointment because everybody wanted Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and to get the number one pick and get uh, Zion Williamson. What we ended up with was Julius Randle and Bobby Portis and RJ Barrett. Okay. So already people are going to be disappointed regardless. Bobby Portis, NBA champ. Yeah. Yeah. NBA (laughs) champion, Bobby Portis, excuse me. (laughs) But, but it's just like, and Melo was, you know, a top three scorer in the league at that time when the the trade was made for him and it's just different so Mello was coming to the Knicks and he was supposed to be the superstar acquisition and because Amari's knees had failed him and and that whole thing and Julius was more so like all right so let's just tread water with this guy until we could sign another free agent or make a trade or get a draft pick or whatever maybe and he he turned himself into an all-star player so I just always feel like the comparisons between Julius and Melo, it's a bad comparison. It's the same reason why the only real player on the Knicks roster right now you should ever compare to Patrick Ewing is probably RJ because they're both drafted high by the team. Like, I'm not going to compare Obi Toppin to Patrick Ewing. You know, the eighth pick in the draft isn't the same as a top three pick in the draft. You know, we've talked about that before, guys, about how your real talents in the top three yeah. may be top five if it's a good draft. And that seems to be the case with the draft that RJ was in. It was probably like a top four with Darius Garland in, in Cleveland as well. I guess my thing is like, why do we f- as fans insist on making comparisons? And like, if you're a Julius person, you're, you're, you're disrespecting Carmelo. And if you're a Carmelo person, then you hate everybody that comes after Carmelo because they're disrespecting Carmelo. And I just personally, I just don't get it. Like just root for the team. The guy you have now is Julius, and it doesn't matter if he's better or worse or the the same as Carmelo Anthony, because if you say say he's better or you say he's worse, that doesn't do anything for you. The results are still the results, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's just fans being fans. I mean, it's it's like comparing MJ to LeBron, and it's just like, it's just fans have got to have something to (laughs) debate and talk about, I guess, but amuse themselves but it's just really not that important at the end of the day I don't think it's that I mean yeah the the it's not a good look for probably James Dolan probably is not too happy about the Randall not making himself available and when they say the Knicks didn't make him available this is Randall basically saying I'm not talking to them so <laughs> right. it comes down to Randall not making himself available and one yeah. thing I'll add to that is I think that's a sign of like good team culture, as weird as it sounds, even mm-hmm. though it costs James Dolan a quarter of a million, because he's like, look, man, I'm just going through it. I, I really don't want to talk to the media. That's a team based thing. All right, don't worry about it. You know, 
I mean, we got he, you. We're not going to force thanked, you to do that. He basically thanked Dolan when he spoke to the media today. I'm right? sure he talked to Dolan about it after the fine was left. Yeah, and he, know, and... he said he appreciates Dolan. Yeah. And what? how many years did we say, have we seen a player say, I appreciate <laughs> you, Dolan? <laughs> I mean, Thanks for everything, yeah. Dolan. Never happened. <laughs> I mean, just comparisons. I mean, people forget that Melo was treated like dog shit as well. Because so was by, Patrick. I mean, they all are, you know, by, uh, by, the, it's by the same yeah. guy, Mark fucking Berman. Relax. Always creating the, the, the narratives relax, and Rafa. trying to create the things. No, hey, Rafa, I can't. Rafa, Berman, Berman is a trigger, man. Berman is getting a higher and higher trigger. I, I try I try really hard not to insult him, basically. It's it's. And I go on Twitter and I see Mark Berman shit. I went, oh, God, oh, God, I'm done. Yeah, I'm, I'm about to lose it. The real question is, when are we going to get the block from him on Twitter? Now, I think we should just be trolling his tweets all the time. Yeah, until I, we get the block. Because you're not really anyone on Nick's Twitter until you get the Berman or Bondi block. You yeah, know, and I, yeah, I've, I've got neither. I'm, 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 I've tried. I we're really amateurs, have. man. We're amateurs, I'm, Alex. I'm we way too, step it up. I am way too polite. Yeah, I am way too polite. I, I, the, the <laughs> first tweet, the first, <laughs> the first retweet I try to do or first comment is always way too strong. And I'm like, no, dial it down. And I, <laughs> they, I dial it way down. It's crazy. These narratives, they, because when we were winning, there were no narratives. Last year, Berman was sleeping. <laughs> and Bondi was sleeping, Isola was sleeping, everybody was sleeping, and now they're all God. coming out of. Does Isola even count anymore? He's he's so national now, you know. So he's on the yeah. SPN and stuff. That's true. Anyway, real quick before we jump to our interview, I I just kind of want to go round robin without much explanation. Just do our quick picks for next week. Um, so we got Please don't <laughs> all road games against the uh, Cavs on Monday. Miami on Wednesday, Milwaukee on Friday. Alex, what you got? I'll go one two. Okay. Yeah, I think we'll just we'll pick up one somewhere. Don't fancy the one tomorrow night. Just never never comfortable with a back to back. Although there's been some weird back to back wins recently. I've noticed uh, certain teams are quite. See, Warriors all seem to be good in back to backs. Yeah, don't don't fancy that one. But I think I think we'll pick up one somewhere. So yeah, I'll go one two. Reverse jinx it to two one. So. Oh, there you go. I hope it works because I don't. We never know with this team. We never know which team are we going to get. Yeah. Are we going to get the bad, terrible Knicks or the oh look, oh this team can be a playoff team Knicks. I don't. We, we don't know. I mean, and they always seem to 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 thrive under these. The, when they say the team is going to lose, ah, oh, this stretch is hard, terrible. This. Terrible games, difficult teams. They're going to lose every single game. They oh oh yeah, you think you're going to we're going to lose? We're going to win. And they've they've done this done this many times this this season. One week ago, we thought they were going to okay, we're going back. We're going to, not even the play-ins. We're going to the directly into the playoffs. And now this. So one let's say one and two. So I don't say, I don't say it's just zero oh and three. Oh, funny tidbit. Yeah. Two of these games are nationally televised games against oh, okay. uh, Miami, Milwaukee. Fuck it, two and one because they're nationally televised. Julius is gonna come to play. He's gonna drop thirty on in each game. Fuck it, okay. I, I'm gonna this... say lost to the Cavs because it's a back to back, and find a way to beat Miami and Milwaukee. 
I don't care. That's fine. Let's just hope Grayson Allen doesn't try to, to annihilate one of our players. He's, sus- he's suspended. For one that's game, yeah. Yeah, yeah, one so, game. So, yeah, fucking ridiculous. But you know, that's a topic <laughs> for another day. Uh, that shit was a fucking hate crime. I swear to God. <laughs> he's, anyway. lucky, he's lucky he wasn't playing in the 90s. He would have been... Uh, oh, my God. They would have beat him up. would have squashed him. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he's lucky it didn't happen. Imagine if he did that to DeRozan. Instead of Caruso. I'm not trying to diss on Caruso. But if he like, did it uh, against like a, a main player as opposed to a role <laughs> player. You know, yeah. I, I feel like it might have been a little bit different if he did that to Levine or Caruso. But I don't know. Maybe Chicago's just just fucking a bunch of bitches. I mean, who knows? It could go either way. But, oh my god! <laughs> so closing this segment out of a bang, guys. That went south quick. real quick. I I just I just hate I hate Grayson Real, Allen, dude. I, I've relax. always hated him. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we're gonna take a quick break, guys. We're gonna get you to our interview with Ersan Demir, who's again a great draft and scout uh, guy on Twitter and great conversation. I really think you guys will enjoy it. And so we'll catch you guys right after the break. You guys, you guys were in such a big role and to kind of not really compete that much today. How disappointing. Berman, relax. <laughs> relax. Relax. are super excited right now to bring on a very special guest, Elson Demir, special guest today from NBA Twitter. He does a lot of great stuff with the draft and scouting and particularly with the international game in Europe, which is, you know, right up our alley. So Elson, I just want to give you a second, just introduce yourself to everybody and uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, what you do on Twitter and, and your analysis of the game and all that. Well, my name is Ashton Demir. You can find me on Twitter at EdemrMBA. I think I tweet mostly about the NBA draft, mostly about the New York League. This season, I'm also doing some other players that I, you know, follow during the draft process to see how they're moving in. So it's 99% about the NBA and 1% about other things, you know, you can find on my tweets. I know I like to talk uh, next with everyone. Right? So I'm glad to be on the show with you guys. Awesome, man. We're, we're super happy to have you. So, I, I mean, let's just kind of, I guess my curiosity is what got you uh, interested in the draft and the scouting aspect particularly? Because a lot of people just like, oh, I want to start following the NBA and let me, you know, make tweets about LeBron or KD or something. But, you, you know, you've gone the more the scouting route, which is, oh, this guy is at this school. This guy's playing in the Euro League and he's doing this and the third. So what interests you more about the, the, I guess, the scouting angle as opposed to just the analysis of current NBA players? Well, actually, it's a long story. Man. I'm going to try to keep it short, you know, but <laughs> I'm going to go back for, I think, 12 years. I was just about 18 years old, and it was a game where Kobe Bryant was playing in Madison Square Garden. Of course, if you know a little bit about basketball, you know, MSG is the place to be for basketball, you know. And I was watching that game just by coincidence. I was seeing Kobe go off, you know, the MSG. So I was like, this is fun. I, I've never really followed basketball. And I'm a big fan of Carlos Stein myself. I go to away games in Europe a lot, you know. Rafa is from Portugal. I went to Benfica twice that game. So, and Carlos Stein also has a basketball team. So I went to basketball away games as well, just to learn more about the game and support the club, you know. And after, yeah, couple of away games, you started to chop it up, you're going to start watching some games, trying to learn more about the game. 
But at the time, I was more interested in European basketball, you know, just low tier leagues. Just, you know, the real fundamentals, not the, the flashy, high level NBA stuff. But that, that came uh, naturally after that. You know, I think it was about five years ago. And then I was really interested, in, you know, about the draft. Because in Europe, money rules, you know, especially in soccer, you know, the player, if a club wants a player, they pay 100 million euros. Neymar broke the record, 222 million euros. So everyone with deep pockets can easily dominate. You know? so, and, but in America, very different. You know, with the draft system, you know, you see a lot of different teams become the champions. But, you know, in Europe, if the team has power, they don't really give the power easily away. But in America, you know, the Lakers and the Boston Celtics are the two biggest teams in terms of success. But they have rough years and they have years where they're successful. So I was really interested in why that's different in America than in Europe. You know? So that's when I started to really dig into draft, you know, what's the meaning of the draft, what does it do? But then I was really interested because it's more fair to the sport. You know, small market teams can easily compete with big market teams if they make the right sense. So I think it was about 2015, 16 that I was really in the NBA. But a lot of Knicks fans are going to hate me for this, but I really started following the Nets at the beginning. And the reason for that was, you know, with the, the draft with Celtic, where they took on the more stars in exchange for a lot of draft picks, so they basically swapped the whole future away just to make around the championship for maybe one, maybe two seasons. And, you know, when I read about that uh, trade, I was like, this is silly. Why would they take on old guys and throw away the future and, you know, mortgage the future for five, six, seven years? And eventually, my feeling, you know, got confirmed because the Nets were bad for them a long time. They didn't really have pieces. They had, you know, if they didn't have Sean Mark, they would be really bad today still, you know. So after that, I was like, this is my thing. Man. I'm going to be really serious with the draft, follow the NBA, learn more about the game. So that's when it started, you know, the 2016 NBA draft. You know, I was familiar with a lot of European players. You know, Christoph Porzingis was my number one overall pick. You know, I wasn't really, you know, deep in the other guys. So it was more like I'm following this guy. I like him. So he's my number one pick. Maybe silly thought, you know, because eventually Christoph Porzingis, okay, before the ACL, he was really good, but I see the number one overall pick. But that's how it started, you know, so... After Christos Porzingis was drafted by New York Knicks, I was, you know, at a stage where I'm like, you know, I'm going to pick a team to follow and, you know, I'm going to pick a team that's closer to my principles. You know, if you look at the New York Knicks, you know, the grinding culture, you know, New York City is very, people are loud, people are really dialect. It's a hard city. It's a, it's a stardom and that's how we live in the Netherlands as well. So that was mostly my connection to, I like this team and they were really bad at the time. So I was like... <laughs> I'm going to have fun with this, you know, rebuilding teams is what I like. I'm not the guy that's going to jump on a bandwagon and you don't stay there. So Warriors, the Cavs, those, those were really my thing. You know, I didn't really like those those teams. So I was, I think, I think it was about 2017, 18. I was really, you know, seriously following the NBA. I was really more in learning more about the college game. And I was watching guys in Europe, you know. So that's how it basically started. And then I took a time off. And I think it's, the 2021 draft is where I got really serious again. I started doing things uh, on Twitter instead of doing it for myself. You know, trying to learn from other people as well, make up with other people. So, sorry, I kept on yapping for a long time, but that's basically a long story that I was trying to make a lot shorter. But 
yeah, that's how it's rolled, you know, and here I am today. No, I, I appreciate the uh, explanation, man, because, you know, a lot of times people like we a lot of times have guests on like, how did you get into this? And a lot of times, especially when we're talking to Nick fans and it's like, oh, you know, I took a trip to New York. I, I experienced the, the intoxication of MSG and and uh, here we are, you know, some years later. So uh, detailed yeah. description is always welcome. Uh, but let's uh, let's try. You talked about getting into last year's draft, which is. You know, a big thing we wanted to talk to you about. So, obviously, the Knicks took four players in this uh, past draft, and uh, I kind of want to start with the one who's getting the most playing time this year is uh, Quentin Grimes uh, out of Houston. Obviously, he was uh, originally a recruit at Kansas, a very highly touted player as well, and he obviously didn't work out of Kansas. He went to Houston, and you know, had a pretty good year there. Uh, what was your read on him and? What do you think he's developing into in the NBA? Well, actually, before the draft, you know, Quentin Grimes was really not a guy I was really, you know, digging deep into. But to give a more overview of the team he's playing for, you know, Houston, they're the top five defensive team this season as well. But, but, you know, they are a team with a lot of fringy guys. You know, there's not really one star there, but they're a collective and they're, they're playing hard. And I think... The New York Knicks, what they were doing in last year's draft, they were looking for defense. You know? Some they were always looking for guys that could play hard on defense and then shoot a three. I think those are two main things they were looking for. If you look at Quinn Wright, I think the defense was basically the unique selling. He was shooting the three ball very efficient last season. I don't know if you see from them, I think it was about 40, 40, 42. But you know, they were looking for guys who were doing the extra things in defense, you know, the team player, making winning plays, not highlight plays, but really winning plays and that can really fit a complementary role in the team and take uh, the team to the next level, you know. So they weren't really looking for the next team leader or the guy with a lot of ball in his hands, but the guy, you know, you know, people like to use the term 3 and D a lot, but this guy is really good 3 and D, man. He can shoot the three ball, but that's how his main focus, main focus is you know, purely on the defensive side of the ball. But well, we see that in his game today. I think he, it's a even play against the video. was uh, against, I think it was Reggie Jackson who tried to throw ISO against him. Look for defense, you know, kept our hand in the space, kept him close, you know, take the contact and doesn't lose his balance, that kind of thing. You know, the guy you can rely on, the defense side of the ball, the guy you can rely on to make a, a winning play on defense. I think that was, that was the main thing they were looking for. You know, they traded it a little back because. Quinn Grimes was going to be picked with the 19 pick, so and they had basically that in their mind. So I think that was the reason they, okay, let's get extra assets. We have our guy, and we don't think another team is going to take him. So actually, looking back, it's easy to say that he was a, a great pick, a home run pick, because he's really shown his value for the Knicks so far. He's he kept his head down, worked hard. He wasn't really getting enough chances. And other guys who will take between 20 and 30 were getting playing time on their team. So I think for him, it was a tough start. But you can see he's now steadily getting about 15 minutes, 20 minutes a game, you know, playing in that second unit. So for him, it's a good situation to be in. If you look at Quinn Grimes play today, I tweet about him a lot. I think he's going to be have a great role in the NBA. Just listening to, to tips in the press yeah. conference recently, he, you know, he sounded like he genuinely just absolutely loved the player, loved loved his effort level, loved his defense, obviously. And for, if the stories are correct, then Tibbs was there. The the workout that he, he, he kind of blew all the scouts away 
at the combine. So he's clearly a tips type player, and he's 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 fitting into the system. Is is it's one of the things I was going to actually ask you about was about about the you know the big question about whether in the draft you you draft best player available or you you draft for fit. Uh, to me, it looked like you know the Knicks this this summer were were drafting for fit. You know, as you said already, you know they they were drafting players that were in, you know the the kind of players that Tibbs likes. You know, heavy on defense, McBride as well, uh, very heavily defensively orientated, which which was great to see. Uh, I'm I'm somebody who likes to draft for fit, but. There's quite a common view, especially uh, with the Americans on on Twitter, that it's always best player available, best player available. I was just interested to know what your thoughts are about that kind of approach. Well, actually, I agree with you 100 percent because I think the fit is the most you know, logical pick for the New York in this stage. Because if you're looking to a hard reboot, you know, with RJ Barrett, they were going for the best talent available. And that's right. With the number three overall pick, that's what you gotta do. But if you have a pick in the corner, you're going to look for a guy who's a complimentary player and who's going to, you know, bring the team to the next level. And that's the stage where the Knicks are because, let's say, they pick uh, the best player available at 20, a uh, high-usage player. You know, if a player scores 20 points a game in college with the ball in his hands a lot of time, that looks nice, but that's not going to be his role in the NBA. So what I see a lot, you know, with uh, people who do this is, now, players score 30 points a game, averaging 25, so it's going to be in the lottery, but it doesn't really always have to be the case, you know, because the production doesn't tell the whole story. Quinn yeah. Williams was really shooting the ball very well in Houston. He doesn't have the ball in his hands a lot. So they were looking for guys like that because, you know, Randall, RJ Bear, those were the guys they were going to give the most uses to. How uh, they got uh, Kemba and Foyer, who's you know, taking a lot of uses as well. But if you look at Quinn Williams, He's going to be a successful player without the ball in his hands too much. Mainly because of his shooting, put him in the corner and he's going to train it too. But also with his off-ball uh, movement, you know. He's making uh, the creating space for the others, you know, with the way he moves without the ball. With his defense, as you say, because I think if you want to make it plain and simple, you know, you can uh, chop the first round in three pieces. You've got a top 10 pick. you got to go for the best player available. And if you've got, you know, with the, what the Warriors did, they just got, the, you know, Kaminga at number seven, he's going to be a future star for that. They could have gone for a compliment, you know, but, you know, Draymond Green is going to be a over. They were looking for a guy who can fit that archetype, you know, you know, a defensive beast who can do a lot of things in offense, a guy you can potentially build around, you know. But if you got a pick between 10 and 20, then you can have a guy, you know, maybe you're looking for a potential star on your team, you know, if you're in, Let's say the Knicks wanted to trade back for uh, Chris Duarte. If they did that, they get a potential star on their team, and he was going to get, be a great fit for the Knicks. You know, to put in with RJ for the two and the three, that would be a potential pick as well. But if you got a pick in the twenties, you got to go for a complimentary player, you know? a player that can, you know, bring a team to the next level, and maybe you know that can boom and you know take over your team. But that's not like that's not likely if you. The pick in 20, you know, because there are 29 other teams, and the odds that you're going to get the home run pick at you know 25 from six is really slim. But if you can get in the Grimes, uh, play like Grimes in the 20s, that's a good pick. So, as you say, I'm 100% on the on that boat as well. You know, you got to draft for the for the for the fit, 
That is just, the future for a guy that can fit in your system. Just draft smart, basically. Dra- drafted smartly is is yeah. number one number one thing. Yeah, that's something I feel like you see with a lot of teams when they get into the second round, especially where they're like, all right, well, let's just roll the dice on some, you know, high, high upside prospect who's probably going to bust out uh, just because, you know, it's the second round. And you know, the Knicks kind of, I think, went a little bit of a different route this past year in the second round when they took Miles McBride out of West Virginia and Jericho Sims super late out of Texas, where they kind of fit like like what Alex was saying, kind of fit into what Tibbs is looking for. A aggressive on ball defender, a point guard in McBride, and a you know, a rim running, dunking, shot blocking big in Sims. So when you were evaluating looking at those guys coming out, I know a lot of people thought McBride might be a first round pick. Is it were you were you in lockstep with that or do you think they would be, you know, uh, mid to late second round picks like they ended up being? No, I had to provide that number 19 for the Knicks. I was on the show with Cooper both a long time. And I was between him and McBride. McBride was the second pick, so I got to be honest with that. I was really going for Sharif Cooper. But they got, you know, first time really with McBride in the second round. So, because they were looking for a guy that Franklin Hukino never became, you know. He's that on-ball defender. He's a guy that could make plays off the bounce. He could shoot the three. But McBride is actually... Providing what you no know, Knicks fans, I was hoping that Frank McKinnon was doing. Because you got a one-on-one lockdown defender in McBride. He's a really good playmaker as well. I like what he's doing with the ball in his hands, creating plays for others. And he's a really smart player, you know. If I look at this, you know, I'm not uh, watching the 100% of the games in the G League. But they usually watch, you know, the longer uh, summaries of the game. But what he's doing with the ball, he's simply, you know, dictating the game, dominating, you know, in sync with these guys. I think that he's playing very, very well off of Jericho Simpson and Jimmy. And Nick Bryant is a guy that needs uh, the, hand, the ball in his hands a lot more than Brian. But I think that's the reason that he's kind of struggling to you know, find, his, uh, find his spot in the rotation. Playing him 10 minutes a night is good, but he's not getting those 10 minutes every game. So he's playing one game and sits the next two. So for him, it's not a good situation to be in. So that's why I like him to be in the G League, play in the G League, you know, keep his, keep his, uh, keep his motor running in the G League, you know, for if he's needed, you know, because you never know when there's an injury. Let's say Mano quickly, you know, Nakamura is getting injured, or we saw it with Kemba. Kemba was, you know, taken out of rotation, and this guy was getting his minutes, and he was providing in the minutes that he got. But he's still a rookie, you know, and Thibodeau is not keen to playing rookies, having minutes in their rookie season, so. For Clinton Grimes, there's a good sign that he's getting those minutes. But for McBride, I'm not really concerned because he's not going to be the starting point guard with New York Knicks. You know, if he's going to be a good role player on this team, that's a win for both parties. And as you say, in the second round, you can pay, really take a, take a gamble on the guy, you know, because the contract situation is you can sign him for two years. The disadvantage is if he's really good at those two years, you got to pay him after that or he walks away. But if you got a first round pick, you, you're stuck with him for four years, you know. So you can basically, you know, decline the playoffs in year two and year four, but that's not the way things go. You know, if you pick the guy in the first round, you keep him for the four years. You know, we didn't do that with um, with Knox, he was saying last year, but usually in the first round pick, you're going to keep him in for the long term. But for Nick Bright, they took the gamble, they got him for two years, he's playing. 
really well this season. I think he's really balling in the G League. I think he was like, I think he was 40, somewhat, 30 somewhat points he had last. The last time I was looking at the G League stats, and there were only 10 times that the player had that many points, you know, but because the difference in the level is obviously there. So if he's scoring 40 in the G League, it doesn't really mean that he's going to score a lot in that game as well. But G League is a good way to keep the motor of a player not running, you know, to test the player's skill, try to slowly adapt into the kind of basketball that the team's trying to play. The Wedges, Knicks are really trying to play just like the Knicks, you know, so. Derek Elson, the coach in, uh, in Westchester, adapts his game to what he sees that the first team is doing. So for Jericho Simpson, the guy that's good to keep their, you know, keep them game that they can slowly develop in the G League because they're not really going to be starters in New York. And for Jericho Simpson, that's the same, you know, because the Knicks, they were looking for a guy that can place a decent screen. Because if you look at this team, Ash Gibson is the only, you know, old school pick and roll. Rome, you know, that you that you see because Mitchell Robinson is horrible, man. It's setting screen. The guy Terrible. the screen that he's yeah, setting is it doesn't create separation at all. It just forces a defender to make a decision. Am I sticking with the with uh, with my you know the guy on the perimeter or adjusting to the Roman? I don't really see Mitchell Robinson getting a lot of people as as a pick and roll Roman, you know, so he's basically he's a liability with the pick and roll. That's why I think they took Jericho Sims. But Jericho Sims actively screening, trying to create space, trying to you know give uh, give you know the pick and roll ball and an open lane to the basket. And that's what you see with Jericho Sims. And I think defensively he has a lot to learn, so he's not ready to the end for the NBA on that end. But offensively he's very efficient. Man, I think he was the only guy shooting over eighty percent, you know, in college inside. He was playing for a Texas team that there were a lot of other centers at that team as well. He was playing with Mohamed Bamba. He was playing for Orlando Magic. He, he stayed with that team for three or four years, but in those three or four years, he really you know, adapted to the fundamental side of the game. You know, with his screens, I think he's a terrific screen center. I think that's something that, that's a unique selling point in his draft profile. And the other thing is his finishing inside. It's, you know, feeding the ball inside. He's an amazing lock that. Just like Mitchell Robinson, you know, they're both very efficient, you know, inside. But with, you know, an old school pick and roll point guard, they can be really efficient players, you know, maybe a 10.10 rebound, double double type of a player. Just like Ivica Zubac from the Clippers, you know, we saw him play today. I think he's one of the best pick and roll centers in the NBA today. And he was a second round pick. So for Jericho Sims, if he can really develop the defense, maybe be a pick and roll defender a little bit better at that end. He can have a good career in New York as a role player. Not as a starting uh, center, but as a role player. And that's what yeah. uh, the front office is really focusing on this year, you know, getting those role players, getting those complimentary guys. We're not going to find a new star in the, in the 20s, you know, in the 20s pick or in the second round, but take, you know, valuable guys that can really provide an upside that we can, we can slowly, you know, develop. And gave him the room, you know. Jericho Sims is on a two-year deal, on a two-way, and he can take his time in Westchester. Big Byers here for two years in New York. He's shown a lot of good things so far. So, so far, so good. And regarding those three guys. I think you're saying it's, it's really true that, that these new draft picks we're getting, they don't have the pressure of uh, playing well right now for us because... Yeah. Yeah, they're, they want, we want them not to be the, the saviors of New York, but 
the complementaries of New York. Let's call them like that. So we talked about a guy who's getting minutes in the NBA. We talked about two guys who are getting minutes in G League. And I want to ask you about, uh, and probably with the the, the less well-known uh, Knicks draftee for this year, it's um, I'm going to butcher the name, but Rokas Jokabaitis. I don't know if I'm saying it, sorry. But yeah. I know, well, following your tweets, basically, uh, and seeing some highlights, that he has been balling in with Barcelona in the EuroLeague as well. Is Do you see him uh, as a future role player in the next as well? Or is it a long shot? Oh, sure, man. I think that guy's NBA ready. But, you know, it's not going to be, you know, your starting point guard for the next 10 years. He's not on that level. But I think if Rokos Zuckerbeiter takes a step in New York next season, he can, you know, be a great secondary ball handler in the second unit, start that way. And after that, we'll see what he's doing, you know. Because if you look at that draft pick, that was really, you know, a good reason to sit there. Because he's playing for a coach, you know, and he who also played in the NBA, he was also a point guard. I think he played in Portland for two years in the 90s. And he's a guy, he's the biggest, you know, prospect of his country, Lithuania. Lithuania is really a basketball country. They are a small country in Europe, but, you know, they are really the national sport is basketball, you know. Jokobaitis is a really skilled player, you know. He can... You know, especially in the pick and roll, what he is doing, you know, in Barcelona. If he's in sync with his pick and roll, Roman is playmaking, you know, is obviously upside is there. But, but you know, his unique selling point in this draft profile is, is, you know, in the NBA, you have very little amount of players that can, you know, adjust their speed, their pace, you know, while driving to the lane. He's really controlling his speed. I'm not going to, I'm not going to compare him to Darren Williams, but Darren Williams had the same thing. Daniel Williams was not the quickest guy in the NBA. But he was, you know, one of the most skilled guys in the NBA at the point because he he managed his speed so well that he can, you know, accelerate, he can slow down, he can play with his speed to create separation, create the open shot. And Ryuko Bairis has the same thing. He has a deadly first step that's really helping his, in his game. You know, he doesn't really need a screen to get past the guy. That's another unique selling point. But basically, if you look at the, you know the overall summary of his game, he's terrific finishing at the rim. With the old school, with the soft in the touch, you know, at the, at the rim, with the finger roll. I think he does it all. He's a really skilled uh, three player at, at the inside at the rim. I think at certain point in the start of the season, I think so far he's finished about seventy percent at the rim. I think that's terrific, man. Because especially if you consider that in Europe, you don't have the three-second violation. In Europe, you can basically play the guy under the basket, big man, and, you know, scare off dudes to go to the room. But in the NBA, you got the three-second uh, violation. But basically, an NBA center can't, you know, can't, uh, you know, sit under the basket and wait for a guy to go to the basket and, you know, deny him there. So finishing at the rim is really harder than in Europe. So the numbers... I think the numbers will translate to the NBA game. He obviously has the privilege, he obviously has the skill. And if you look at the defensive side, that's where I really am not worried, but he's not giving the signs that he's giving on offense. Mm. He's really, he understands rotations, he's a real team player. So, you know, in terms of adapting to a system, that's not really a problem for him. He's playing with NBA players. He played with Paolo Gasol in the start of the season, well, in the in training camp. Paolo Gasol has done NBA 
it's not Barcelona anymore, but even one day the training of the power was strong can really change the outcome of the players, no? And Nikola Mirotic, who played for the Bulls for a couple of years, he's in the MBEs in Barcelona as well. He's their star and he's playing with him. And I think he has all the all the tools to really slowly develop him to the NBA level there because he has a coaching staff who are all Lithuanian. And he's a young kid who's playing abroad for the first time. So even that part of that thing to the NBA is really taken care of in Barcelona. So, you know, that draft pick made a lot of sense. But I think he's the best draft and stash player in the NBA today. I think he's NBA ready at this moment. But he's not going to be the, the savior of the world or the starting point guard on his team next year. That's not something I see in him. But I see in him a solid guy that can nearly contribute in the second unit. I think if you take a guy in the NBA draft 2022, a big man, you can you know, pair him with. I think that's maybe a part of the later segment of this podcast to get back on. But that's really a guy, you know, you can... That's a guy you will look for. If you're looking for a backup point guard, this is exactly the guy that you're looking for. Like the three-point shot, he's not taking a stay if you maybe 1.23 a game. So he's really looking for the best shot available. So he's going to be forcing things. But he just, like, he just like to take it inside, take it at guys. Because he's one thing that you can really do inside. But he's doing very well. It's when he's driving to the lane, he can, you know, you know, these driving kicks, you know, to the open man on the perimeter, he does that very well. You look at his game, look at his highlights, he's doing the same things all the time, but he's doing them very well. If you look at this guy, he's not going to have to, you know, the widest bag of tricks, but the tricks he got, they're solid. I think that's what you're buying with Robert with the Bidens. You know, Barcelona is maybe a top two or top three team in Europe. They're trying to win the early this season. So they're playing in the toughest domestic league after the NBA. Spain, I think Spanish league is by far the second best league in Europe. I think they're not even another league that's close. Maybe you can do the Turkish league or you know, the Russian United League. Those are the leagues that are closest to the Spain, Spanish league, maybe Italian league as well. But you know, Spain in terms of player development, I think then Spain has a lot of NBA prospects. So the level of competition that you have in there is on a really high level as well. So it's not that he's playing cupcake competition and, you know, it's not comparable to them yet. That's not the case at all. I think the level of play that he's playing right now, especially in the EuroLeague, those are great sample size to see where he is today. And personally, I think he's ready to make a jump to the end game. You, you said about kind of you expected him to more be a kind of role player, like kind of maybe a backup point guard, but... Money-wise in the NBA, I mean, the way the team's going, they're trying to kind of maybe become more top-heavy the Knicks in talent-wise and salary-wise. So he'd be he'd be getting paid quite a low salary if he was in that role. I've heard before about you know the Euroleague is now, you know, some players are saying, well, it, you know, I'd get paid more staying in the Euroleague, and obviously the the prestige of playing in the Euroleague is has got higher and higher over the years. I mean, do you think that that would ever come into it with regards to the decision of staying over there? Or... Yeah, you see that in another player. But uh, the last EuroLeague MVP and finals MVP, Vasily Amici, he's playing for Andrew and they won the EuroLeague last season. His draft rights were in the hands of the Sixers a lot of times. They traded to the Oklahoma City Thunder. But he's basically saying he's making about 3.3 million, I think, net 
improved. But if he's going to make that money in the States, that's probably five, six million dollars annually. So he's saying, rather than rebuilding in uh, Oklahoma City and just staying here in Europe, trying to go for a back-to-back championship. So, you know, if you're the starting team, there's definitely an essential state. If you look at Roca Sugabaitis, who was initially, you know, taken in as the backup point of Nick Clayton. But Clayton's got injured and he's out for three or four months. So he's basically lucky because of his injury. He's getting a lot of more playing time. And they got another player, you know, uh, I lost the name. He was drafted by the Utah Jazz. Australian point of Dante Exum, sorry. As you know, they brought him in to, uh, you know, fill the roster, uh, fill the depth chart a little more. But Roca Sugabayas wouldn't have been this far if Clayton was a team. But to answer your question more specifically, you know, if he's playing like this again, he signed a four-year deal. So maybe you know, if he signs an extension, but it's not very likely, you know. But because for European teams, this is more of a cash cow. Because let's say Roca Sugabayas take a step to the NBA, you're looking at the buyout fee of maybe $2 million. But an NBA team can only pay about $750,000 themselves. The player has to pay for the rest. But that's where, you know, the, the second round pick comes into play because if you sign a second round pick, you can use cap space to also pay for the buyout. If you if they was taken in the first round, then Focus Zucker Buyers would have maybe made $2 million as a third pick, for example. But he has to pay maybe $2 million to Barcelona. So, that will be a decision for him to come stay here. I know he can be here right now. But in the second, uh, the second round, the player can say, I want to come over. If the team says, I want you, they can sign it. If the team says, no, I can't sign it right now, then he basically becomes an unrestricted free agent. So he can sign elsewhere. So for you, yeah. he really has to start on his own hand. But next game, you basically they can use cap space to end pay for buyout and, you know, pay a salary. He's making millions in Barcelona right now. I'm not sure what he's making. I can't imagine him making more than one million euros annually. So if he comes to the NBA, that will basically you know be an increase in salary for him right away. And he's a young player. He's going to be I think 22 years old in the summer. So if he wants to take the step, this is the moment to do it. You know? And you know James Dolan isn't really the guy that you know they're taking a good you know. You know, being a cheapskate, you know, if, if he wants him, he's paying. So yeah. I think the BFB is really a problem, but that's a really great question, man, because that's really an underrated product that a lot of people don't really look into. But for the, for another guy, Micic, he's staying in Europe because he's basically getting more money and a bigger role. Because maybe if you went to the Sixers, that was something you would like, you know, to basically win a ring with the Sixers in the NBA. But, you know, Personally, I would also stay in the Euro League rather than, you know, be on the Republic team in Oklahoma So those are the, both uh, sides of the middle. Is, is there much of a history, do you know, if, of players that have been this draft and stash that have gone on to be more than just kind of, you know, role players and, and, and you know, you know, kind of minimum salary kind of guys? And they, is there anybody that's really kind of broken out and, and become a star in the NBA? Maybe not a star, but just, you know, maybe a starter on a, on a decent team. Is, do you know of anybody that's gone that route? Mirotic. 
think Nikola Mertes was really on course. Maybe he wasn't uh, winning six man. He really was in conversation that season. Mm-hmm. But after that, it was crazy. I think the boss was paying his paying five or six million years annually net. So mm-hmm. basically, Barcelona is paying him a lot more than he was really going to earn the NBA. So he's a guy that was really on par to be a very good player in the NBA. Yeah. But if you look at another guy, that's really another guy that's coming into my mind right now. But basically, as you say, there are mostly the stars in Europe are going to be role players in the NBA. There aren't really guys that are going to be the stars. So if you look at Giannis, he was eight years old when he made the jump to the NBA and never went back. I think Zaza Pachulia, but that's going way back. I think it's 10, 11 years ago during the lockout. You know, they signed in Europe, but there isn't really a guy that, yeah, that comes into my mind that's, you know, being a star in the NBA today that was taking the jump in Europe at the later stage of his career. They were mostly hopeless. You know, Pablo Pigioni is a guy. I think these kind of guys, you know, you see the skill, you see the experience they have. You bring him in to make a team better, but not that, you know, to give him the keys of the city. That, that hasn't really been happening so far. Speaking of that, I, the name I, we are, I always remember, sorry, is uh, Teodosic. Uh, he was supposed to be coming to the NBA and being uh, the complete rock star at the point guard, and he uh, struggled a bit. So, yeah, yeah he was, a, he was a, a star and he, and he struggled. Since we, we are having you here on the pod, uh, there's a, something that we uh, we already discussed. That is the um, the way the Americans uh, or the American sports see uh, European players, because there's always because there's many many more great European players playing in the NBA. You got Jokic, you got Giannis, you got uh, uh, Doncic. You, you had Dirk for many many years as well. But you're starting to get uh, all these players trying to, to get into the NBA and being better than just role players. But and the thing we, we I mean, I, sometimes I see it is the um, uh, Europe, the, the European player bias. It's like they're or, or they're soft or they're ne- never good enough. They're not athletic enough. There's always something that in American sports they try to push the uh, the agenda against the European player and in, in, in favor of the American uh, guy. For, for example, the, the, when uh, Rook, the, the Rookie of the Year debate between the Doncic and Trey Young, Doncic for people was the clear winner, but they started that agenda for Trey Young to win. Even American players, LeBron James and everything, trying to yeah. get Young to, to, to get the Rookie of the Year. Is it just, uh, is it something in our minds or do you think there really is this kind of a... a a bias uh, toward, towards uh, European players playing in the NBA? Yes, I think not that they're jealous, but you look at both sides of the coin, I think Doncic and Trey Young example is a great one, man, because Luka Doncic was 18 years old and he was dominating the world. He won the Euro MVP and he was dominating. And he was you know, dominating Giannis. He was really making life miserable to everyone he was facing on the court. And he won the MVP with anonymous votes. Now, that was something that was never really seen in European basketball. So in my mind, it was basically the number one pick. But in America, they knew the game differently because the rules are different as well. Trey Young was, you know, he was a wonder kid in college. And he was dominating college kids. Sanchez was dominating 
grown-ass men, just like you and me, just like, you know, guys that have kids and they're fighting to make uh, to make money to feed their family. Those were the guys that look at Dantes and down. So the sample size was really different. Though. But if you look at the overall picture, I think the biggest difference between the American style of you know, youth development and the European style, and that's why the American style you know, looks a lot biased because they play the game in a whole different way, man. Because if you look at uh, if you look at two situations, one situation is where an American kid goes to college and he's going to project to be a future star. Second example is for European. If we start with the European one, you know, in European youth development, what happens is, you know, it doesn't really matter how good you are, you're always uh, a part of the team. So you're going to play 25 minutes max, just like the rest, no matter how good you are. What they do is they teach you all the fundamentals on the elite level. So if you got to be a good player in Europe, you got to know the fundamentals. you got to be elite at that point. So the physical aspect of the game, if the player is really physically gifted, that really doesn't matter until they get to that. But in America, in the, you know, in college, what they do, they focus on all the physical tools a player has and utilize it for their game. So they're not teaching the fundamentals. They're not teaching, you know, how to set the screen because the center position is really where we see this one happening. They're not doing that because if you look at NBA today, if you look at the center position, which is basically dead, every player, every almost every team has a European or international starting center. And don't really see a lot of great NBA American centers. And we did something about that today. In the top 10 screen assist in the NBA today, there's only one American player, Daniel Gap. The rest of them are all international players. Seven of them are European players. I think almost all seven of them are from the Balkans. You know, Ivica Zubac, who we face today, you look at Nikol Jokic is a great skin center, Monta Sabon is a great skin center. But what I'm basically trying to say is that the difference between Trey Young and Luka Doncic at that part was that Trey Young was dominating. The whole team was fit just to, you know, to facilitate Trey Young dominating the game. Luka Doncic was a part of the Real Madrid squad that was already loaded with stars. So he basically came in as a role player. Of course, they knew how good he was, but he was going to show it. He was going to earn everything. Trey Young was really given everything because everyone knew how good he was. And sure as hell, the other guys in that college team, you know, Clover, weren't as good as him. So he was immediately the star. Luka Doncic had to earn the start. So in the NBA, if you look at Luka Doncic physically, he's a lot farther than everyone else. I think he's another guy that you know worked on this game in the physical aspect. But you know, he's stuck in Dallas because they're really providing him to maximize stuff. That's no longer story. But I really like the question, man, because this is the biggest difference between you know players who come from overseas to the NBA and you know players from college who go to the NBA game. And you know, in America they are afraid that you know the international players are taking their league over. If you look at the last few years, the league and the team, China's won twice. Jokic won it last season. First time Giannis won it, people were talking about that he didn't deserve it. Last season, Jokic won it. People were talking that he didn't deserve it. Jokic this season is dominating every advanced stat in the NBA by far. I think these things are not really a coincidence. The international game is really, you know, slowly and slowly and slowly taking over. But of course, the only league is not going to be in the level of the NBA. 
But you know, if you look at the players in the NBA, I think over five years, ten years, I think you see a lot more international players, and maybe a little less American players, because in America, you know, this can continue like this. You know, if you look at the '90s NBA, it was big man dominant. You know, if you look at Team USA, they were playing uh, the Olympics with uh, Kevin Love. Ben Adebayo, the general player. Kevin Love wasn't even playing this season. I think that's humiliating for them, you know. And that's basically using the center position as, as an example. Because we all know the Americans play as the best in their basketball in the world. But the gap is slowly becoming closer and closer and closer. But I think that's a sign that we see moving forward. And that's also the sign that you see a lot more international players dominating the NBA. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting topic because, you know, if you've been watching basketball for any period of time, you, know, you knew there was, you know, an influx of, of European players in the 90s, you know, Tony Kukoc, Sabonis, you know, Demontis' father, Arvidas. But now it's, you mentioned, you know, Giannis and, and uh, Jokic winning MVPs, you know, that, that kind of changes the narrative, you know, where it's like, like nobody looks at Giannis and thinks he's soft, you know? <laughs> so that whole, like, that old... Um, mentality kind of jumps out the window in that regard. And I think, you know, Americans need to adjust their, the way they look, they, that they look at the game. Right. But bringing it back to the Knicks real quick. So obviously, you know, scouting is a year long thing, you know, people are already looking forward to next year's draft for, for the Knicks. What do you think they should be looking for uh, in this coming draft, you know, whether, you know, obviously depends on where they finish and whether they end up in the lottery or not, but what kind of uh, player do you think they should be targeting uh, in this year's draft? Wings, man. I think this, today's NBA, you can't have enough wings, but specifically we need a wing player that can, you know, guard the three and a four spot. Look at uh, the roster today, and that's why they need the camp ready, because he has the size and he has the defense upside to really make Obi Toppin's deficiencies on defense slowly forget. I think uh, Cam Reddish is going to be a little bit different. But really, for me personally, let's say the Knicks have two picks again. They're going to take two guys. Let's uh, reconsider it like that. At the center position, they need a guy that can play a good screen and they can, they think they can shoot a mid-range jump. Because, you know, NBA spacing is everything today to win. You know? And Mitchell Robinson is not going to space the floor. He's not going to shoot a two. He's not going to shoot a mid-range jump. You know, he's locked up in the, in the pain, and that's what he's going to do. That's what they're going to pay for in the offseason. Hopefully, they're going to pay Robert Williams third money, you know, for uh, 52 million, something like that. But the Knicks really need a guy that can, you know, excel as the pick and roll Roman that can shoot a mid-play jumper and that can hold his uh, ground on defense and that can, you know, guard the perimeter, just like Mr. Robson did in his first two seasons, you know. He was really switchable like that. And, and then, I mean, he can really guard, you know, the quicker players on the perimeter and he can dominate the opposing big men. So we see a little less of that this season with Mr. Robson getting all that weight. But I think the center position really specifically includes pick and roll Roman and the shooter that can, you know, potentially shoot outside three. Doesn't really have to be now, but the guy that will really learn that, but he has to possess the shooter a good mid-range jump. And I think if you look at that player, he's playing in Europe uh, already right now. He's made Ismail Kamakate. He's playing for fast basketball, 21 years old, you know, 6'10", 
and he really does it all and all. But like, he's a great, you know, a screener. He's playing with Knicks legend Kylo Quinn. He's also playing for Best Basketball. And those two guys, you know, Rafael Ballo had a one-on-one interview the other day where he was saying, you know, Kylo Quinn is preparing me for that game. He's helping with everything, the small things that it takes to be successful there. And with Ismail Kamagata, he does very well. He's great. You know, same screens that create separation. You know. That's the only screen for him that he can, you know, take the role to the, the back at the finish there. You know, he's really, you know, good at creating separation with his screen. He really shooting the midway jump. I see Theo from the, I think it was five, seven foot today, but he was taking a midway jumper close to the three point line with confidence, you know, and that's what he needs really need. That's, if that's something that this Russian doesn't have already. And I think they're going to move on from there around the offseason, but they're going to keep me around. There's no way they're going to get that, that guy going. So that's my number one need in this draft class. Specifically, it's Malcolm Gate. I think he's projected to go between 20 and 30. Some have him in the early second round. Some are really extreme and they're pushing him towards the lottery, but I think he's not really a lottery level type of player. He's a great backup center. He can immediately contribute, especially with a good pick and roll point guard, you know, just as Lucas Rukobiris is. So if you're looking for a guy that can potentially pair with him, he's the perfect guy. I think the second draft need is, you know, a wing, especially specifically one with size. You know, we look at the six, seven, six, nine range. You can really defend the three and the four specifically. And you got two American guys that can really defend that. Peter New York is perfect. The first one is Josh Pino. He's playing for the Memphis. Uh, he's playing for Memphis. I think Josh Pino is Canadian, actually, but he's a real complimentary player. Good size, you know, I think 6'8. A real complimentary He's definitely an offense around the rim. He's a really shooting three back in college, so that's something I really want to do more. But he's really making, he's really good at making when he plays. So what we see is basically we're Copying Quinn Grant's draft profile, but really looking for a, for a taller guy. You can really focus on you know, taking the more, the longer and the more powerful wing slash forwards in the NBA. You know? so basically, what I'm saying, a guy that can stop a guy like Camelo. Quinn Grant's size is not enough to stop a guy like Camelo. You know? He's really good at defending the two major fours and threes, but really looking for a guy that can you know, close out the, an opponent three and four. A good complementary player that can make defensive winning plays. I think that's what the NBA, especially the Knicks, are looking for in this uh, NBA draft. But my favorite one is playing for Bale, Jeremy Sowan. I think the most European link you can give to him is he's born in the UK and he has a Polish mother, I guess. But Jeremy Sowan is, you know, a defensive specialist, you know what I'm saying. I really like his draft profile specifically for the Knicks. He's a guy that with a good size, you know, that. Now basically, a close-out defender, three and four, potentially a two-way guy. Also, not really showing that three-ball. That's something. That's something that's really important uh, in today's. Uh, most teams are looking for, you know, if they don't want to draft a wing, you gotta shoot threes. If you're not shooting threes or giving signs that you're gonna develop it in the NBA, no matter how good you are on defense, maybe if you really good, the teams gonna try that. But that's the archetype that you know a lot of teams are looking for. I think the Knicks specifically are looking for that center guy, you know, backup center, but you know, more taller wing. You know? So 
kind of a guy like Cam Reddish. So basically what we'll say is Cam Reddish is actually our draft pick that we were looking for next year's draft. But you can't have no depth because we really go for depth. And, you know, as you said earlier, we're going for fit. And that's, I think, the mainly pick two guys and two guys are going to fit with me. But the biggest need is, you know, that leading point guard. That's this team's biggest need. We saw today as the Clips as well. You know what they do is they win double teams. And because Alec Burks doesn't match the point guard, they kept doubling us, kept doubling us, and basically that kept them in the game. So and we saw in other games that was really an issue as well. But the leading guard, yeah, depth in this draft is not really, really good. I think Ty Ty Washington from Kentucky, he's the best candidate, but he's projected to go between 10 and 12, maybe, maybe even higher. He was injured against Auburn, so hopefully that's not, not going to be that too serious. But personally, the leading guard is for them, uh, not the number one thing, but I would, uh, I wanted them to take a leading guard this draft. Last year's well, draft has maybe, but this year's draft doesn't really have a leading guard, so that's something they got to install those plans, man. But to give a summary, a backup center, that's what we need. A taller wing to close out, you know, opposing three and fours. That's not really on this roster either. So those are the two needs that I see on this team. Well, I, I was going to actually ask you because it was interesting what you were saying about the, the wings. You can never have too many because I, I think we've talked a lot on the pod recent weeks about how the, the Knicks are building, you know, a pot of assets. You know, they're going to make big trades at some point, package players together to make a big move. And maybe that's where the leading guard comes from. Uh, I mean, if we're picking between 10 and 20 or even even lower, then you're not going to get a starting level point guard likely in that range. So more likely, either they package players together, they package picks together to move up if they spot a, a lead point guard in the draft high up, you know, or the draft to, to just kind of again kind of increase the, the package and if wings being as, as as valuable as they are you know then if you are just picking best player available to try and boost the kind of pot of assets then then maybe a, a wing player is exactly as you said you know that's the probably what other teams will look for if you're if you're going to make a big move elsewhere I think the wings are really you know what you have in this class the most because last year's draft class was insane. I think if you look at, for example, the Brooklyn Nets, you know, they got uh, Damon Shaw late in the first round. They got, you know, Ken Thomas. Those are, in this class, maybe lottery level talent. Last year's draft class was absolutely insane at the amount of that. That's why we got so many good players with such late picks. But this year's draft class is really close much. If you look at the, you know, the top five, after that, everything is really close, especially from maybe that 12 to 40. I'm not going to say, you know, you can put every player at 12, every player at 40, but you have 40 first-round caliber guys in this year's draft class. And after that, um, you know, the board is really getting a lot thinner. So as you say, you're not going to find your next leading point guard in this draft class. But yeah, you know, you have a lot of good wings and that's what a lot of teams are going to execute to improve their depth. Because you don't really have a lot of potential stars in this Yeah, the whole lottery can be, you know, solid starters in this, in the future. But the next year's draft class, I think that class is a lot. I don't want to use the word weaker, but 
yeah, it's not really the same as last year. Last year was absolutely insane. I think if you literally pick a player X, you have to make you had a case to put him in the top ten. But this year's class, you know, the level of quality is a lot less, but still you have a lot of talent, especially in the wing position. It's loaded with talent in this left that, but the other positions are really not. Not something to write home about, you know, because you have a few good centers, but not, uh, you're not going to fund an Evan Mobley. I think this year's number one pick is not going to be close to Kate Cunningham or Evan Mobley. So that's the big difference between this year and last year. Yeah, the lottery pick last year, that was way daily more valuable than the lottery pick this year. Mobley looks like a superstar, doesn't he? Yeah. Oh, man. The whole run for the cap. Look, man, when they when he was coming out, I was like, this guy has 10-time All-Star written all over him. It's just like the skill set is just insane. And some guys, I don't know, you could just see you could just see it, you know. And even, you know, for me, who's not like, you know, I'm not a self-proclaimed like draft expert or anything. It's just like you watch a guy, you you look at like the way the game is played today, and he's like, Yeah, that's that guy's gonna be a good pro, <laughs> you know, even if yeah. maybe he wasn't like elite elite in in college, right? And as far as like producing winning, but uh so I just wanna Thank you for uh, your time, man. Uh, you've been super gracious with it. We really appreciate it. Uh, we just want to remind everybody to make sure to give you a follow on Twitter, and that's at E-D-E-M-I-R-N-B-A. Great, great analysis for anything draft, EuroLeague, prospects, the whole thing. So definitely give yeah, him man. a follow. Again, man, thank you so much for uh, joining us today, and you know, you're welcome back anytime. Appreciate that. No, man. Really appreciate it. I had a ton of fun, you know, talking with you guys. So, you know, if you, in the future, if I can come back, I will be really happy. So, but overall, you know, I think conversations like this, this is what I love, man. Because, oh, yeah. Yeah. We're the same yeah. way. We're we all do way. it, man. We all do that's it. That's why we do it. <laughs> yeah. Literally, way, throughout the I'm... week, that's all we do. We just, we just go back and forth talking basketball. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's awesome. All right, man. Again, thank you again for jumping on, man. We appreciate you guys again. Make sure you give us on the follow at uh, edemir mba uh, on Twitter, and again, we'll link that in the description. Thanks again, thanks for hopping on, man, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right, guys, that's going to conclude another episode of the Worldwide Knicks podcast. Thank you as always for tuning in, and thank you to our special guest Ursan Demir for joining us to talk some great stuff about prospects, NBA draft, and international European basketball. If you'd like to follow Ersan, again, his Twitter handle is at EDemirMBA. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can follow us at Podcast, where we post live game stream talks, and we also talk about just the goings-on in the Knicks world. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving us a rating and a review on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you do enjoy the podcast, make sure to share it with your friends and to subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Go Knicks, and we'll catch you next week.